0: A scientifically designed, comprehensive and convenient blend mixing over 70 high quality ingredients to make a powerfully simple supplement for you. AG1 is empowering people to take ownership of their health with vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced nutrients and more in a single scoop that takes just seconds to mix each morning. That's one scoop, once a day, with one glass of water all done in less than a minute It helps to support your brain, heart, energy, immune system and mental health. Drinking AG1 has been part of my morning routine for a few days now. And I've got to say, it tastes pretty good to me. I can definitely taste the vanilla and pineapple that it's infused with. Part of the changes I wanted to make for myself this year was to improve my wellness routine, both physically and mentally. So aside from stepping up the exercise, dusting off the running gear and eating the right way, I felt that a comprehensive, convenient supplement such as AG1 could only benefit me more to support my baseline nutrition. After all, health is a journey, not a destination. So by drinking AG1 with its list of over 70 ingredients... The nutrient replenishment AG1 provides from the broad spectrum of micronutrients and phytonutrients it contains to keep your body nourished all day, every day, or the rhodiola, magnesium, and B vitamins that help support sustained focus and energy throughout the day, to name just a couple of its benefits. It's an effortlessly daily habit to drink AG1, assisting you in being a better you. Consistency is key, and as I said, It's designed to be as quick and simple as possible. Just one scoop, once a day, mixed with water, it takes less than a minute. Or you can even mix it up with other things, all provided to you in the guide that comes with AG1. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash tcenthusiast. That's drinkag1.com slash tcenthusiast. Check it out. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the series 8 finale of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. North Wales's premier one-person and his one-eyed true crime enthusiast true crime podcast in which each time around i bring to you or i try to bring to you anyway a tale of true crime that i've scoured the uk and ireland to find that you won't have heard on lime time rhymes with crime or true crime potting shed or i want attention by being wacky about murder whilst pissed any of those bloody silly shows that to them there are only about 20 crimes ever in history but rather I look for tales that are unfamiliar, often shocking and sometimes unbelievable, but that are all true. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The world's smallest cow, my beloved true crime enthusiast, Pixie, is here with me as always. He is awake today, so listen out for his little bell. But most importantly, so are yourselves, the enthusiasts that keep the show trundling forward like a Brexit deal. It is wonderful as always having you joining me and the Mog today and I thank you so kindly and hopefully as you have, then it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. Right then, and for the finale, have I a tale for you this time, an individual I've been waiting to cover for a long time which i think could tie in quite possibly with two of the cases covered in the previous episode the spectre of the east lanx road it also has become such a tale through writing and researching that i decided it's pretty fitting for this series finale before i have a couple of weeks off and then i'll be back bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with series nine the crimes of the person you'll meet this time around are so revolting and disturbing that he could have walked into any Monsters of episode hands down, as you'll come to hear. The very strange and disturbing individual indeed, and the figurehead of a tale which is a shining example that although the wheels of justice may turn slowly at times, they do turn indeed, hence the title of the episode being so. Once you hear the account I'm about to bring, you'll also surely think to yourself, how many other times has he done something like this? The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of a sexual nature and of injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for the final time in this series for a feature-length episode I've entitled Double Jeopardy. By August 1991 then 33 year old Sarah Crump had lived in London for six years since 1985 and for the previous two years alone in a first floor one bedroom flat that she'd bought number four Joyner Court at number 49 St Margaret Road in the West London town of Southall. Originally from the city of Lincoln in the county of the same name sarah was one of three daughters born to ken and patricia crump and after leaving school in the 1970s had sought out a career in nursing she'd worked as a nursing assistant at a secure psychiatric unit from october 1978 to april 1980 and by april 1982 had fully qualified as a psychiatric nurse why exactly sarah made the move down to london from lincoln is unclear Though it is reported that around the time she was training as a nurse, her marriage had collapsed, ending in divorce, and perhaps Sarah felt a change of scenery was necessary to move on with her life. Once she'd moved down to London, she found work as a psychiatric nurse at St Bernard's Hospital in Ealing, but by 1991 had had a change of career again and was working as a personal secretary in the shiropedy department of Wembley Hospital in Fairview Avenue where Sarah was very well liked and considered a hard and capable worker who had towards the end of that month been offered a permanent position there. Sarah also had a steady boyfriend at the time, Mohammed Younis, who worked as a minicab driver and with whom she was so serious, though he was somewhat younger than her, that the couple were trying for a baby. So, someone with everything going for her and with every reason to live however it wasn't all coming up roses for sarah and muhammad by 33 sarah had what was described later as a strong desire to become a mother but try as they might it wasn't happening for the couple and sarah had turned to fertility treatment now ivf is of course costly and soon sarah was under considerable financial strain to fund this so to this extent Solely to pay for the IVF treatment, she embarked on a bit of a double life, another side to a life that she kept from her family, and largely to an extent, Mohammed. In the evenings, Sarah worked from time to time as an escort, which involved her engaging in sexual encounters for money, and though sometimes she visited clients' homes, she would usually receive male clients to her flat for that reason. By August 1991 she'd been doing this for about a year after she'd registered with an agency Elite Private Escort Services which ran from an ordinary looking terraced house number 29 Cleve Avenue in the nearby town of Hayes. Using the working name of Angie Sarah would earn up to £200 per hour entertaining clients that the agency would source for her and who would arrange for either her to visit them or for them to come around to join a court once a client had been and gone as a safety precaution the agency would require that sarah call the agency to let them know that she was okay and that the client hadn't been weird or violent towards her now Mohammed was later to claim that although he knew sarah worked as an escort he was more of the understanding that the extent of this work did not extend any further Than her having simply given massages to customers a couple of times. Indeed, Sarah's family or many friends didn't even know this much, they were completely in the dark about her double life. On Wednesday, the 28th of August 1991, Sarah had finished work at Wembley Hospital at 2 pm and had received a call from the elite agency saying that she had a client booked for late that evening in the name of. Duncan who had used his work phone at the company in Heathrow that he worked for RSH Suzuyo to make the booking that afternoon being a normal routine for Sarah by then she spent the rest of the afternoon pottering about making a few telephone calls to friends and her family between 7 and 8 p.m that evening and spoke to Mohammed ahead of him going to work by the late evening she'd prepared herself for a her client who was due to arrive at about midnight. And shortly after this, as was standard practice for escort work, Sarah phoned the agency to confirm that he had arrived and he had paid. By 2am, Sarah made another call to the agency to state that Duncan had been and had left, again which was standard practice to do. But the person she spoke to, escort agency boss Lisa Pegg, who knew Sarah well, Later, recalled that the call was unusually short and abrupt for her, and Sarah didn't use her working name, which she always would have. The following morning, the Thursday, Sarah uncharacteristically didn't turn up for work, and despite several telephone calls to her home, did not answer, and didn't turn up for work on the Friday either. And though it's not confirmed, it's likely that someone from Sarah's work went around to join a court to knock thinking that perhaps sarah may be ill but got no answer her boyfriend Mohammed also had no joy in reaching her over the next few days although was busy working himself and by sunday the 1st of september at about 2 p.m had called around to the flat and had let himself in with his own keys now a description of the flat's layout is unavailable but Mohammed was later to claim that as he'd walked in he'd noticed clothing strewn around on the floor and an overpowering, strange smell about the place that he put down to Sarah having cooked something and had not bothered to change the bin bag over with the leftovers in it. There was no answer despite his repeated calls for Sarah and he then noticed that the bathroom door was open with spots of what he immediately identified as blood all over the toilet and sink. He'd left at seeing this, been in the flat for no more than 30 seconds, he later claimed, and had immediately reported his girlfriend to police as a missing person. Strangely, for a small one-bedroom flat, well, it struck me as strange anyway, Mohammed didn't look in the bedroom as the door was closed. 30 minutes later, After Mohammed had reported Sarah as a missing person at Southall Police Station, police visited her flat at Joyner Court, and found the scene as Mohammed had described. Clothing strewn about the floor as though the place had been ransacked, the blood spots in the bathroom, and that overpowering smell. But this time, the smell being all too familiar, police looked in the bedroom, and discovered a scene of almost unimaginable horror indeed the shaken senior investigating officer immediately assigned to the inquiry following the discovery detective superintendent jim blan told the local media the following day this was the work of a very disturbed person it was a horrific attack and her injuries are the worst i have ever seen The injuries were inflicted by someone with a considerable lack of squeamishness and the attacker's handiwork is that of the most cold-blooded killer I have ever seen during my 31 years as a policeman. Sarah's body had been found naked lying face up on her bed. The cause of death was later given as being due to multiple stab and incised wounds from a sharp 7-inch bladed knife which had cut through her neck vessels, her aorta, her left lung, and her heart. Now that's horror enough, I'm sure you'll agree. But Sarah's killer hadn't stopped there. Taking time and clearly enjoying what he was doing, as she was dying, or perhaps, hopefully, as she was already dead, the killer had sliced open his victim down the length of her body, and had then, Disemboweled her. Sarah had then had both of her breasts cut off, right down to her ribs, and these placed next to each other beside her on the bed, and then her chest had been opened, and her internal organs removed, and placed at the foot of her. Filleted is perhaps a better way to describe what had been done to her. So blood soaked was the scene that the spots Mohammed had noticed in the bathroom were likely left there by her killer, who had showered to wash the blood from himself, so covered in it must he have been. Mohammed Eunice, automatically as the prime suspect, was arrested on suspicion of her murder, but was released on police bail the following day, as by then, Sarah had been established as having died up to three days before discovery, and he could account for his movements fully throughout that time. Indeed, he was soon afterwards ruled out of the inquiry completely. He had told police that when he saw the spots of blood in the bathroom, he had called the local hospital before informing them, because he thought Sarah may have had a miscarriage. Yes, tragically, at the time of her death, Sarah was two weeks pregnant the escort money had paid for an ultimately successful program of IVF for her. How utterly tragic, and what horror beyond belief is that, eh? It was soon established that Sarah had this alter ego of Angie, and that the last person to establish her as being alive was the agency boss, Lisa Pegg, at 2am the Thursday morning. And so, alongside the standard murder inquiry actions of house-to-house inquiries in the local area, and a look into Sarah's life, efforts were made to trace clients that Sarah had met through the elite escort agency, specifically, her last known client, Duncan. And by four days after the discovery of her body, the investigating team were well underway in speaking to several of these men, for as an attractive woman, Sarah had been popular as an escort. One of the people spoken to in the early days of the inquiry, the first time being just four days into it on the 5th of September, was a 34 year old lorry driver living in Hampton in southwest London named David Frank Alexander Smith, a hulking 6 foot 4 unit of a man weighing 18 stone, who had been arrested as he had subsequently been identified as Duncan due to phone records kept by the escort agency, which had been traced. To his work phone. Smith initially denied that this was him and claimed he had never been to Southall before stating that, okay, he was and had booked a non sexual massage with Sarah for that evening, but had left her safe and well after this and had only learned about her murder in the local news. In his original police interview, Smith was adamant that he only went for a massage and he didn't have sex with Sarah whatsoever he told detectives she said she was a secretary at a hospital she was telling me her problems and there was a time when she was crying she said she couldn't have a baby and mentioned IVF treatment I'd heard about IVF treatment it's something to do with having a child she wanted a baby desperately I asked her if her boyfriend loved her she said she was beginning to think that he didn't now, despite only earning £225 a week with his job, which was based near Heathrow, Smith later admitted during subsequent police interviews that he was regularly spending between five to £600 on escort girls. He was released on police bail, and though other people were spoken to, Smith remained a strong person of interest and was interviewed several times further. As the investigation progressed, Sarah's case was featured as an appeal on the ITV Crime Monthly programme, which aired on October the eleventh of that year, but which received just six calls, including one from another escort agency and one from a woman who claimed to have been attacked in similar circumstances. Which I don't think can quite happen, and you live to tell the tale. But there you go. Now it is quality over quantity. And though the information received was followed up, no connection to Sarah's murder could be made. Sarah was finally laid to rest in May 1992 in a move-in service held at St John's Church in the village of Bracebridge Heath in Lincoln, where the 70-plus mourners in attendance heard the words spoken about her by a shattered family, her parents Ken and Patricia who had been too numb to talk about Sarah beforehand to the press, and her sisters, Joanne and Susan. More than one tear was shed as several of Sarah's favourite songs were played, including the Elton John songs Candle in the Wind and Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, before she was interred at Washingborough Road Cemetery in Lincoln. Today, Sarah's headstone remains there, Alongside the graves of both of her parents, who have also now sadly passed away, Sarah's headstone displaying a nurse's badge atop the words, One of the best three girls in the world. Now, By the time Sarah's funeral was held, however, a man had been arrested, charged, and was then awaiting trial for her murder, David Smith. As I said Smith had been interviewed a number of times by then and each time when asked why he claimed he initially did not tell police he'd been with Sarah because he was scared to explaining someone murdered her and I'm getting the rap for it I'm scared stiff that's why I didn't say anything I would nothing to do with this murder at all. By Wednesday the 1st of April When he'd attended Southall Police Station with his solicitor Alan Sherwood for yet another interview, by this time, following a close look at Smith and learning so much more about him, police were ready to charge him with the murder of Sarah Crump, and the following day, Smith, dressed in a blue jacket, grey pullover and shirt, and dark trousers, appeared before magistrates at Ealing Magistrates Court, charged with Sarah's murder. He was remanded in custody and, over a subsequent further series of appearances, was remanded further in custody and was then committed to await trial for this charge. Smith's trial began at Court No. 1 of the Old Bailey in July 1993, where he pleaded not guilty to the murder of Sarah Crump. Prosecuting counsel John Bevan Casey told the court in graphic detail of the discovery of Sarah's body and of the post-mortem results, though the jury were spared from seeing any crime scene photographs, them being deemed too disturbing to view. The case that the prosecution presented was the suggestion that Smith had murdered Sarah after a series of rejections by other women, for lots of women would have nothing to do with him due to him being too big. This hatred of rejection was said to stem from a woman Smith had met almost two years before, who he had become infatuated with, and who had ultimately broken off all contact with him, Mr. Bevan explained. He is a very large man, well over 6 foot 4 inches tall, and his penis is too large for some women to be able to accommodate him. It is our case that the defendant dislikes and becomes upset by rejection it is the prosecution's case that he deliberately killed sarah crump possibly after one rejection too many and that he had snapped and executed a gruesome replication of the wounds to the body of the woman with which he had been infatuated janet now i should explain that smith had met this woman known only as janet at the Eureka Nudist camp in Kent that he frequented one evening back in October 1989, at one of their Saturday night adult-only discos. The mind boggles, doesn't it, but you just wouldn't want to dance there, would you? And Janet herself was later to give evidence to the court, saying that she and her husband David were broad-minded individuals, shall we say who would regularly invite people back to their camper van for coffee and no-strings casual sex, which probably was as tragic as it sounds. Smith had been one who had visited their van twice and had been back to parties at their home on at least ten occasions, over which time he had clearly become obsessed with Janet, telling her that he loved her and asking her to leave her husband for him, which she was never going to do. In fact, Janet was to tell the court that she'd only have had sexual contact with Smith on one occasion, one Friday evening when he had practically forced sex upon her. When she had cut off contact with him in November 1990, as he had become too weird, Smith had made a pathetic attempt to slit his wrists with a disposable razor, had repeatedly called her at her workplace, had made allegations that her husband was involved in an extramarital affair and had then sent Janet a rambling letter pleading for her to resume contact with him with an almost sinister tone if she didn't. She explained to the court It said that he had a gun. I cannot remember whether he said he was going to shoot himself or shoot my husband. Mr Bevan said The picture is of immature behaviour following his rejection by a woman who he had tried his best to persuade to love him by reasons which were effectively futile. Now, what Janet had expressed strongest in her evidence is that Smith was particularly obsessed with scarring that she had to her body following breast enlargement, hysterectomy and gallstone removal surgery that she'd had. He was fascinated by these scars, and the prosecution told the court that it was noted that Sarah had been cut with a knife in an almost identical pattern to those operation scars borne by Janet. The injuries inflicted on Sarah bearing distinct similarities to the scar in left as a result of these medical procedures. Was Smith trying to recreate the woman whose rejection he had felt the most? so he could destroy her. Mr. Bevan continued, The coincidence between these injuries and the scars to the body of Janet, the subject of his infatuation and rejection, circular to the breast, vertical to the stomach and horizontal, will be in due course for you to judge. They are the act of a man who has something more than simple murder on his mind. Smith admitted to the court paying Sarah Crump for sex on the night that she had died, but said he merely engaged in sexual foreplay with her, denied being involved in her murder, and claimed once again that he had left her unharmed. But Smith's defence counsel, Ronald Thwaites Casey, told the jury that police were convinced his client was a murderer to the point of being blinkered to anything else, retorting. My speech is not for policemen of a nervous disposition. The police believed they had got the right man and set out to prove it at all costs. This is a very dangerous course to follow. In this case, it has caused them to mislead and distort in the most appalling way. They've even suppressed the evidence that proves my client's innocence. Everything that doesn't fit the prosecution theory that Smith is the murderer is dismissed as trivial, irrelevant, Or laughable. This evidence that the detective in charge of the inquiry by the time of Smith being charged, Detective Inspector Jill McTeague, was alleged to have suppressed were unidentified fingerprints that had been found on the bedroom door handle of the flat, on a bedroom drawer, and underneath the bed. And indeed, none of Smith's fingerprints had been found in the flat at all. Plus, he was Duncan. He had admitted, and Sarah had called the agency back to say that her client had left. Ergo, the killer must have been the one to leave the unidentified fingerprints. Mr Thwaites also questioned the overall handling of the case by D.I. McTeague, who he said was not equal to being in charge of her first murder inquiry of her rank, and was guilty not only of suppressing evidence, but incompetence also an allegation which D.I. McTeague emphatically denied, telling the court that she and her team had bent over backwards to alert the defence to all the evidence available. Despite a convincing case brought by the prosecution, it was not enough for the jury to be able to convict without fingerprints, DNA or eyewitness evidence linking Smith to the crime being presented in court, and after just four hours' deliberation, on friday the 23rd of july 1993 david smith was acquitted of the murder of sarah crump after thanking each member of the jury a gray suited smith left the dock of court number one a free man carrying all of his possessions in a black bin liner now this particularly rankled with the investigating team because alongside sarah's family every officer involved was convinced that they had worked and had brought Sarah's killer to face justice. And D.I. McTeague made a point of expressing just how convinced they were of this by a quotation made outside the Central Criminal Court, following Smith's acquittal, in which she said, The case is closed. We are not looking for anyone else. Meaning, we know this is Sarah's killer. Why look elsewhere? And why were they so convinced? Because what they knew, but what the deliberating jury could not know, by law, was that David Smith had come to police attention before. In fact, he had an appalling criminal record, stemming from the age of just 19. The jury could not, by law, know that he had back then served four years in custody, long before he was charged with murder and that just days before Sarah had been killed so savagely, Smith had been acquitted of attempting to rape and kill another escort girl. Oh yes, meet the monster that is David Smith, and who was then a free man. Born in April 1957, David Alexander Frank Smith lived with his parents at a house in Mark Hall Close in Hampton, in southwest London, and as a lorry driver who drove for Heathrow based lorry company RSH Suzuyo, was described as a polite, softly spoken, conscientious employee who largely kept himself to himself, enjoyed martial arts, which reportedly he was an expert at, was a part time DJ, and who was known to colleagues as the honey monster or Lurch, due to his heavy eighteen stone build, his six foot three inch height, His unusually large size 14 feet and his slow and deep speech. That was by day, but by night, he moved in a more twilight world of escorts and sadomasochism, particularly obsessed with sadomasochistic sex, and regularly visiting a dungeon at a seedy London sex club where he liked to be thrashed with whips and bound up with chains. Two-thirds of his salary went on pastimes like this and escorts. He rang up bills of some £60 a week back then, using his employer's phone to call premium-rate chat-up hotlines, and when all of this wasn't enough to float his boat, was known to frequent popular spots for couples as a voyeur, watching others engaging in sexual acts. In fact, so much did he spend on sex, so much was it his focus that he even ran his own escort agency, hiring girls out at £250 a time for sexual services, and profiting by taking a cut of their earnings, though he would never use girls from his own agency himself, stating later, I don't believe in mixing business with pleasure. Ten years before Sarah's murder, Smith had briefly been married, though this had been short-lived due to his behaviour. His ex-wife, Michelle Thomas, told years later how she'd met him in 1980, when the then 21-year-old single mother of three young children had taken a job as a controller for the taxi firm that Smith drove for, and how she was drawn to the slim, keen ballroom dancer and Elvis fan, who seemed almost shy and inward to her, a mummy's boy, or like a big teddy bear. She described him. He had sexual problems, she revealed, and was unable to make love to her, but nonetheless, she stuck with him, and eventually, Smith, Michelle, and her three young children moved to a flat in the London district of Brockley. However, this is when Smith's behaviour took a turn for the bizarre. He couldn't have conventional sex with Michelle, but would regularly look at porn, and began taking pairs of Michelle's knickers to work with him. To masturbate with. At home, he became very jealous of any attention Michelle gave her three children and would often have tantrums himself if he couldn't get his own way with things. His actions, too, were alarming. On one occasion, after getting up for work, Smith had for some reason left a candle burning in the bathroom which had started a fire after he left, leaving Michelle and the three children need to be rescued from the flat another sunday afternoon whilst driving during a minor argument smith deliberately drove straight into the path of an oncoming vehicle michelle who had her daughter on her knee in the passenger seat shielded her daughter from harm but at the cost of partly going through the windscreen herself and needing to be cut free by firefighters while smith stood around watching doing nothing to help Though Smith was prosecuted for driving without due care and attention for this, he was never to apologise to Michelle, or even to explain his actions. Now, most people would be out of such a relationship with actions like these, wouldn't they? But instead, Michelle decided that perhaps marriage would fix things between them, and in late 1981, she and Smith were married at Lewisham Registry Office. For a while, things were okay but then his behavior started once again the roused, the childish behavior continued and although he was never violent towards the children worryingly he had taken to carrying a knife constantly with him which he would often jab towards michelle this would just be in jest he claimed but michelle could never forget the gleam in his eyes when he was brandishing one of which he had several and indeed is today still left with five or six scars underneath her breasts, where Smith had made contact with her. Now, Smith is not described as being a habitual drug user at all, but Michelle told years later how the death knell to their marriage came from one evening, when she came home to find Smith and several of his friends sat around the kitchen table, with a large supply of hard drugs in front of them. When Michelle had remonstrated with him about bringing all this into their home and had attempted to leave, he had grabbed her, dragged her back into the room and had forcibly injected her with heroin. Michelle claimed she was unconscious for several days after this and woke up in an intensive care unit. Her first visitor was David Smith who asked her if she was coming home to him. When Michelle emphatically said no that was it they're done and you proper do get out of there over something like that don't you? Smith had told her in no uncertain terms I'll find you wherever you are. Horrendous that or what eh? Though she was terrified of him Michelle had divorced Smith as soon as she was able to and he went back to live with his parents where he was to remain until his arrest a decade later. After his arrest for Sarah's murder, Smith had even told police during one interview that he was unwilling to talk to anyone but his ex-wife. And though she refused point-blank to see him, still so terrified of him, she did offer police a statement about him. When he was acquitted of Sarah's murder and released, so fearful was Michelle that Smith would come and find her, that she changed her surname and moved to the other end of the country. Like police, she knew what he was like, see, how dangerous he could be. Which you'll see too, when I describe to you now his appalling criminal past. Although several instances described here, there is little to no information available about through researching. Aside from convictions for minor thefts, And the driving without due care and attention incident I mentioned moments ago, much more seriously. Up to 1991, Smith had a string of previous convictions for offences against women. These dated back to beginning at the age of 19, when Smith was committed into custody on the 24th of March 1976 by Richmond magistrates for raping a 30-year-old mother of two at knife point at a home in Oak Avenue. In Hampton, three weeks previously on the 1st of March, in front of her two children. He had spotted his victim fixing up curtains in her living room and having drank nine pints of lager that day, so he claimed, had brazenly knocked on her door brandishing the seven inch knife he had with him and burst in when she'd answered. He later told police I don't know why I picked on that particular house. Except that I saw a baby playing by the window and guessed there'd be a young mother inside. At knife point, Smith had then raped the young mother in her own bedroom, inflicting a knife wound to her in the process, whilst her two children screamed at the door, terrified. It was an attack that left the young mother terrified of being at home alone for years afterwards, and the children so frightened by what they'd witnessed that they became hysterical if they saw their parents even embrace on friday the 18th of june 1976 smith admitted this crime at the old bailey and was jailed for four years upon his release he became an unlicensed taxi driver had met and married michelle as we've heard but then in 1987 Attacked another 30 year old woman who was a passenger he'd picked up in the early hours after locking the car doors and driving past her desired destination and heading on to a beauty spot, although she managed to escape without harm by kicking in the taxi windscreen. For this, Smith was convicted of unlawful imprisonment, yet he received just a two year suspended sentence for this. The following year, he was cleared of a violent attack on a sex worker when she didn't turn up to court, being too terrified to testify against him. And three years later, he would be charged with attempting to rape and stab a sex worker in a room of the Retreat Hotel in Ashford, in Kent, after putting a Stanley knife to her throat on the 18th of August, 1991. The woman had gone to the bathroom, and after returning to Smith's room, he had locked the door behind her and approached her wearing disposable plastic gloves and wielding a knife with his trousers removed. The woman managed to escape and flag down a passing police car after which Smith was arrested. However she subsequently failed to turn up to give a statement and so the case against Smith was dropped. This was just 11 days before the murder of Sarah Crump which Smith had been acquitted of, and which, because of the double jeopardy legal rules enforced in the UK at the time, which said that a person acquitted of a crime could never again be tried for that crime, David Smith could not face trial again for Sarah Crump's murder. Of course, following his acquittal, information about his criminal past could now be published though, And how gutted every jury member must have been after that, you can but imagine, can't you? And days after his acquittal, Daily Mirror reporter Gary Jones confronted Smith at his home. Knocking on the door, it was answered by Smith's elderly mother, and behind her stood the hulking Smith. Unfazed, the conversation between Jones and Smith reportedly went as follows. You raped and murdered Sarah Crump, didn't you? I didn't touch her. You know you did it. The jury didn't hear about your past. You are a violent rapist, aren't you? I've had problems with women in the past. They make things up about me. You won't go near women again, will you? After a pause? No, they're bad news. I won't touch a girl ever again. We skip forward now some five years from this after his acquittal smith had resumed his driving career be it lorry driving or minicab driving he certainly for a time did the latter for he was instrumental in a scheme called the comic cab check campaign being launched in 1998 after the company smith was driving for mogul radio cars in surbiton discovered that he had been imprisoned 22 years earlier for raping a young mum in front of her children and appalled he was immediately sacked by them however smith continued to work with other local minicab firms a public inquiry was launched some two years later and the government eventually introduced measures to license minicabs so that all minicab operators now have to obtain a license from the public carriage office in order to operate legally. Though it would take a further two years for police to vet all of their drivers, and some bad apples still slip through the net. Perhaps a tale for another series, that, which is the biggest possible hint of someone we'll meet next series on the show that I can give there to as well. The following year, then, April, at one thirty p.m. on the afternoon of Sunday, the twenty-sixth of April, two horse riders were alarmed to discover a pile of heavily blood-stained women's clothing and belongings: a white T-shirt, cream cardigan, cream trousers, black boots, black double-breasted PVC jacket, and leather shoulder bag, in a thin blue plastic bag. Dumped in an alleyway just off Nailhead Road in Hanworth in West London, and informed police of their find. How they were identified as belonging to her is not reported, though is likely identified through items in the handbag. But the clothing and belongings were identified as belonging to 21 year old Amanda Walker, a sex worker who was relatively new to sex work, and indeed, relatively new to London. Amandra had come from a respectable family in the Swancliffe area of Leeds and was the mother of a two-year-old son, Macaulay, who was living at the time with his father. How Amandra drifted into sex work isn't overly clear, although she was described as being an occasional drug user, so it may be to fund this. But what is even less clear is when she'd moved down to London to do this, where she was living at the time and indeed, why she'd made such a move, for there are, of course, red-light districts in many of the northern towns, although perhaps the spectre of the Ripper's Reign of Terror still hung over those and was enough to put someone off, who knows. It is reported that over the days leading up to the weekend of the 24th of April, Amanda had been back up to Leeds for a visit to her son and her family, who were trying to get her to give up her street life. She'd been given a lift back down to London by friends that day, but had jumped out of the car near to Paddington Station, perhaps by then eager or desperate for a fix, perhaps needing to earn the money to obtain one. Regardless, at about 10.45pm that evening, Amanda was arrested for soliciting and taken to Harrow Road Police Station, where after being charged, she was released on bail. Such a newcomer to sex work was she, though, that though she'd come to police attention several times, she had never before appeared in court to answer charges of soliciting, and was last seen at about 11.30 pm that evening on Harrow Road asking someone for directions back to Sussex Gardens. There were no Google Maps or mobile phones commonplace back then. The petite woman, with the long mid brown curly hair, and the tattoos of a dolphin on her foot and a flower on her left shoulder Amanda was just 4 foot 10 inches tall and weighed 6 stone was such a newcomer to the oldest profession on earth that she didn't even know her way back to the beat that she worked in. Being such a newcomer too she may not have even realised that the next punter could just have been the wrong one and may not have sensed any danger. So With the discovery of Amanda's clothing the following day, a missing persons inquiry was launched from Sunbury Police Station, albeit an aggravated one, because police were certain almost from the very start that harm had come to Amanda. And by almost a month later, the officer leading the inquiry, Detective Chief Inspector Norman McKinley, told the media It is still being treated as a missing persons investigation. Although we believe she has been murdered. She was not a convicted prostitute. She had come to the attention of the police on several occasions for soliciting, but had not yet come to court. Whilst Amanda's last known movements, as I've explained, were established, house to house inquiries were made around the Hanworth area, but it was a mix of police intelligence and a forensic examination of her clothing. That were to lead police to an arrest. Acting on the hunch that Amanda's killer had dumped her clothing on his way home, and that because she was a sex worker, this was a sexually motivated crime, a check on all known sex offenders in the immediate area her clothing was found in was made, and one name, an individual who lived less than a mile away from where her clothing was found, jumped out at police immediately. David Smith Tests on the blood-stained clothing revealed two different DNA profiles on them. Along with a set of fingerprints on Amanda's handbag and PVC coat, and comparison to Smith's fingerprints on file, revealed them to be a perfect match for these. So on the 29th of May 1999, Smith was arrested at his home on suspicion of Amanda's murder. A fresh DNA sample taken from him subsequently showed that his DNA profile matched that of bloodstains found on Amanda's t-shirt, trousers, underwear, and black PVC coat, which he could not explain away, claiming that he'd never even met Amanda. Two days later, he was charged with Amanda Walker's murder, despite there still being no sign of her body, and after appearing at Kingston Magistrates Court, was remanded in custody. Only the following day, Tuesday the 1st of June, at 1.45pm, six weeks after Amanda had last been seen, a Royal Horticultural Society employee, investigating complaints from members of the public, about a pungent smell coming from a section of the gardens of the Royal Horticultural Society in Wisley, in Surrey, made a horrendous discovery. In a shallow grave, partially covered in leaves and dead branches, was the badly decomposing semi-naked body of a young woman which was later identified by dental records as being that of the missing Amanda so badly decomposed was her body that the examining pathologist in Guildford could not be certain of a cause of death though the extensive mutilation that could be determined made it clear that Amanda's death had been as a result of foul play Parts of Amanda's genitalia had been removed with a sharp knife, whilst leaves and twigs had been forced into her throat, most likely to stop her screaming. Horror beyond belief, eh? When Smith's trial for Amanda's murder began in November 1999, he was to put forward the same defence he'd given six years previously during his trial for Sarah's murder claiming that he'd met up with Amanda, admitting he'd been to Sussex Gardens that night, and had engaged in sexual acts with her, but he had left her unharmed and did not murder her. Prosecutor William Boyce Casey told the court of the investigation into Amanda's disappearance, the evidence discovered leading to the arrest and charge of Smith, and the discovery of her body by the RHS employee, saying, He initially thought it might be a dead animal, a deer or something like that, but when he went to investigate, he found it was the dead body of Amanda Walker. It seems clear from forensic pathology in this case that she'd been mutilated in the genitals, and part of the genitals had even been cut away. There were also marks on her body consistent with Miss Walker having been tied up, perhaps so she could be more easily moved from where she was killed. The story that emerged from the prosecution was that on the night Amanda had died, Smith had been to a commercially organised sex party. Mr Boyce continued. The defendant was attending a party for what might best be described as broad minded adults in Ilford, in Essex. In reality, it was a brothel. The party, which Smith had paid £110 to attend, had featured a love dungeon complete with all the instruments of sexual torture i'm sure you can imagine think the inside of 25 cromwell street he'd expressed particular interest in a cross therein and had reportedly asked whether a hostess who had caught his eye could be tied to it and have pain inflicted upon her to which he was told in no uncertain terms definitely not it's just the guests he'd subsequently spent an hour in a steam room there with a red-headed woman although was to leave without having intercourse or any sexual contact with her whatsoever for his potential partner for the evening had been scared off by smith's size the pain he had caused her by gripping her hand boasting that he couldn't feel pain himself and the fact that he had terrified her by saying he could kill her in seconds if he wished read your audience mate When he left, I quote, he felt randy and was looking for a bit of fun, the court heard. Police claimed later he was of the mindset that he wanted to control a woman totally. And so about midnight, Smith headed for the Paddington red light district, seeking out a sex worker. Here, Amanda, a newcomer to street life, had crossed his path. Mr Boyce went on. By picking up a prostitute on the streets in Paddington, no one would know who he was. He took her from Sussex Gardens, raped her, disposed of the body, and disposed of her clothing. Whether he raped her or had consensual sex, then killed her, does not really matter. The allegation is murder. Now Smith had claimed that he had merely had sex with Amanda and left her safe and well and to explain away the stumbling block of his blood being all over her clothing. He tried to explain away this by claiming that he'd tripped and hit his face on the pavement as he left the party in Ilford, splitting his lip open, and told the jury that he was still bleeding from this lip when he met Amanda. She attended to this wound, getting traces of his blood upon her clothing in the process. Though he didn't have a ready explanation for his fingerprints being on her coat, and her handbag when he'd had sex with her and left he claimed he had felt unwell and had stopped for a rest on his way home near to Richmond Deer Park which he hadn't mentioned to detectives in any of his interviews however the prosecution had an account that destroyed any slight credibility that this sham of a story had which was produced to the court in the form of a witness statement Whilst on remand in Her Majesty's prison high down in Surrey, Smith had found himself sharing a cell with another sex offender, a man named Stephen Williams, and finding that both had a mutual interest in sadomasochism, soon began talking. Smith had soon admitted to Williams murdering Amanda, telling him that he had hit her about a bit and had hurt her. Smith furthered that he had then threatened her with a knife put his hand over her mouth and nose knowing the points of the body to put pressure on in order to inflict pain and kill and had wrapped her body in polythene to incapacitate her he had then used the knife to cut Amanda downstairs as he termed it before and after having sex with her and had then stuffed leaves into her mouth to stifle her screams as he stabbed her repeatedly After burying her body in the shallow grave it was found in six weeks later, Smith had celebrated with a couple of cans of lager before driving away. It was Smith's undoing telling such a horrific story, for Tattooed Williams was so appalled by what he had heard that he broke the code of the cons and made a statement to police. There was more in the statement, but I shall come on to that later. On the basis of this statement, the DNA and fingerprint evidence, and such a bollocks account that he gave, the jury of four women and eight men did not believe Smith's story one bit, and after just three and a half hours' deliberation, on Wednesday the 8th of December 1999, decided unanimously on Smith's guilt. He displayed no emotion whatsoever, and though Amanda's family had not attended the trial, Sarah Crump's family had and they broke down weeping at the verdict. After the jury returned their verdict, presiding justice, the recorder of London, Judge Michael Hyam KC, told Smith, You've been found guilty on very strong evidence of a brutal murder. Anyone who has heard what you did to that unfortunate young woman must have been horrified and revolted. Her body was not found for some time, and it was not possible to ascertain the cause of her death but it was clear her murder was both sexually and sadistically motivated from the state in which she was found. It is evident that you killed her to satisfy your perverted sexual obsession. You are without pity or remorse. You even boasted about what you'd done to another prisoner when you were being held on remand. In my judgment, you are a man who is in extreme danger to women and you are likely to remain so. He then sentenced smith to the mandatory term of life imprisonment following the verdict the officer who led the amanda walker inquiry detective chief inspector norman mckinley said smith was a very dangerous man who had a string of previous convictions for offenses against women adding smith was tried for the murder of sarah crump she was horrifically mutilated he was acquitted of the offence that's all i can tell you my thoughts at this time are with amanda walker's family and sarah crump's family di jill mcteague the officer who had led the investigation into sarah crump's murder and who had also been present to see smith's sentence to life imprisonment furthered he is the most dangerous man i have ever had anything to do with you cannot treat him as a normal human being. And Sarah's mother, Pat Rhodes, issued a statement in which she said she was relieved that Smith had finally been jailed, saying, Nothing will bring Sarah back, we know that, but we feel there's been unfinished business while Smith has been free. I truly believe Smith to be guilty of the murder of my daughter Sarah. I said at the trial he would kill again. My thoughts and condolences are with Miss Walker's family. Now after Smith's conviction, his details were circulated to all UK forces as police forces across the country examined unsolved murders of sex workers to see if they could have been connected to Smith. One police source said, We believe he is one of the most dangerous sadomasochistic sex killers of the century. If we hadn't put him away now, there is no doubt he would have gone on to kill and kill again. As far as we're concerned, He got away with it at least once. There is no question in our minds that he did kill Sarah Crump. His details have been circulated via the National Crime Faculty to every force in the UK and a number of them now want to visit him in jail to see if he's prepared to talk to them or confess to killing other women. Although five years separate the murders of Amanda Walker and Sarah Crump, it is hard to believe, knowing what we know about him, that he's not committed other killings although we have no direct evidence that he has committed other murders he will be questioned about dozens of unsolved crimes including rapes and murders stretching back more than 20 years now smith has over the years been spoken to several times in prison in connection with several unsolved killings the length of the country and has long been suspected of several others but to date The only murder he has ever admitted to is the murder of Amanda Walker. In information released in 2006, evidence from a psychologist Smith had spoken to in Wakefield Prison, Monster Mansion itself, referenced Amanda's murder reported that Smith had told him, I quote, He thinks that his very negative experiences with previous relationships may have been linked to the build-up to this offence. He described his very short marriage in 1982 where his wife had an affair with their lodger within months of marriage and then proceeded to get him into trouble stealing money, destroying the relationship he had with his father. He states that he felt as if she was controlling him in this relationship and his lack of assertiveness allowed her to do this. He thinks that he may have treated Miss Walker like he did because of his feelings towards his previous wife. Now this is most likely utter bollocks on Smith's part because he tells that many lies it's hard to separate truth from fiction and it stinks of childish blaming doesn't it. However the same report does clarify one point which is surprisingly more than likely Smith telling the truth. Reference Smith's blood on Amanda's clothing the psychologist continued he claims to have grabbed hold of her and wouldn't let go she started screaming and a struggle ensued during which the victim bit his finger really hard drawing blood he said he then had sex with her then cut her and put a hand over her mouth while he was having sex with her and that's how she died he said he then covered her up with leaves then had a couple of cans of lager and left Now comparing this account and the statement of Stephen Williams and it seems this is as close to a genuine picture of what happened to Amanda Walker as Smith would be to admit. Poor, poor woman. Since his incarceration in 1999 Smith has popped up periodically in the news at the inquest of Harold Shipman in 2005 Smith was named as one of several prisoners who made up part of a card school that Shipman played in at Wakefield Prison, along with John Taylor, who we met in this series' opening episode. And in November 2008, Smith was taken from Wakefield Prison to a Leeds police station for casts to be made of his unusually large size 14 feet to see if they could be matched to footprints found at crime scenes of unsolved murders it was reported one source said he has feet like the abominable snowman he was incensed when asked to cooperate but he realized he had no other option now the molds were taken in part because smith had become a suspect in the murders of sex workers linda donaldson and maria rakenna in 1988 and 1991 respectively Tales that can be found in the previous episode of The Enthusiast, The Spectre of the East Lanx Road. A police source said, Smith was a lorry driver travelling up and down the country. We believe he was a serial killer, and are going back in time to bring closure for victims' families. Now following this, it was also reported that Smith had found God, and become a regular at Church of England Sessions in Wakefield Prison, ever since police had took plaster casts of his feet, where because of his size, other inmates couldn't fit next to him at Sunday morning services. An insider revealed of this newfound faith. Smith found God just after he was quizzed. He would lumber up to the Sunday service and try to sit next to the other likes but he is so huge he just ended up pushing them off the pew. In the end, he was given his own one near the front and told not to move. He takes an active part, singing hymns and joining in all the prayers. Smith is quite devout now and regularly reads the Bible in his cell. It's as though he wants to make peace with God, but it's a bit late for that. Yeah, just a tad late, eh? Now. As the warden has on his wall, in the Shawshank Redemption, what a film that is, his judgement cometh. Now way back in 1993, when he'd been acquitted of Sarah's murder, the double jeopardy clause in English law had prevented Smith from ever being tried again of the crime. But a decade later, legislation was introduced under the Criminal Justice Act 2003, which amended the double jeopardy law meaning suspects could be retried for a crime they were previously acquitted of if, new and compelling, evidence became available. Metropolitan police officers had kept the case under review, and after the law was changed to allow double jeopardy prosecutions certain circumstances, Met Detectives started a reinvestigation of Sarah's murder. It took several years, until 2021, but new evidence was collated alongside the existing material and presented to the director of public prosecutions with the request that an application be made to the court of appeal to overturn smith's acquittal which in may 2021 was granted duly on the 20th of may 2021 smith was charged once again with the murder of sarah crump and the following year Court of Appeal judges heard the case and quashed his acquittal, ordering that Smith be retried for Sarah's murder after this new and compelling evidence had emerged. The Court of Appeal ruling shows that judges were persuaded by the striking similarities between the murders of Sarah and Amanda, including mutilation of the bodies after death, Smith's pattern of violence towards women, and new fingerprint evidence. The unidentified fingerprints that had been so pivotal in Smith's defence argument three decades before had been painstakingly matched to the previous occupant of Sarah's flat, which, surprisingly I thought, should have been done back in 1991. It does seem a massive oversight, this does. However, that was now one card that Smith could no longer play because it disproved his claim at the 1993 trial that these fingerprints proved that someone else had killed Sarah after he had left. Also this time, unlike in 1993, police had a jailhouse confession from Smith to Sarah's murder too. Oh yes, I told you there was more in the statement from Williams, it just couldn't at the time be used in court. When he appeared for trial at Inner London Crown Court on April the 25th, 2023, Smith once again denied a single charge of the murder of Sarah Crump. The barrister who had successfully prosecuted him in 1999, William Boyce KC, was once again prosecuting and told the court how this new and compelling evidence against the convicted killer had led to him once again standing trial. Mr. Boyce said that then Detective Inspector McTeague and her team had conducted a professional, rigorous and thorough investigation back in 1991, but Smith was acquitted in 1993 on the evidence then available. Mr. Boyce then largely repeated to the court what the Old Bailey jury had heard back in 1993, how Sarah was a part-time escort, how she arranged clients. And the details of the evening of her murder, where she had been booked by Smith. Smith, then aged 34, who was at the time living with his parents in Hampton, had had the week off work when he had visited his victim at her one bedroom flat in Southall. Jurors heard that in the months leading up to Miss Crump's death, Smith had developed an unhealthy and inappropriate obsession with two women, one being Janet. Having been rejected by her, he had turned his infatuation towards a second woman, a sex line operator who had arranged to meet with him in Manchester on August 24th. However, she stood him up after seeing him and not liking the look of him, and so Smith had returned to London rejected, and employed the use of escorts with increasing intensity in the days leading up to Sarah's death. Now his use of escorts predominantly involved him inviting them to his home, and the day before he came into contact with Sarah, Smith had made three separate attempts to book escorts, but for whatever reasons, the meetings didn't take place. The first booking that day was meant to be at Smith's house, but he cancelled, and what was different about the next attempted booking, and the booking he ended up making with Sarah, was that Smith was keen for the meeting to take place at the escort's address. Smith also made specific efforts to find out if the escort was alone and they would not be interrupted, concocting a story in the first that he had been attacked during a previous engagement by an escort's boyfriend. However, the prosecution claimed, it was clear evidence that Smith was trying to ensure he would not be disturbed. While carrying out his intended attack, Mr. Boyce continued. After a series of telephone calls on August the twenty eighth, nineteen ninety one, the defendant went to the deceased's home. It is now undisputed that at one stage he left the premises to withdraw some cash. Now it was alleged that Smith had at first asked Sarah when he had arrived if she accepted checks knowing full well that all services such as this are cash only and had then gone to get cash from a machine when she told him that it was strictly cash a ploy for him to have ensured beforehand that sarah was alone in her flat and once this was done he then returned and remained there until the early hours of the 29th of august 1991 as part of the safety protocol Sarah had phoned the agency at 2am to report that Smith had left. However, the defendant later revealed he was aware that women were expected to make these calls. Mr Boyce told the court. The prosecution contends that the highly irregular nature of this call, short, abrupt and not using any name, was unusual in format, but tragically, it wasn't picked up it indicates that sarah crump knew she was in danger at the time she made it and that smith had compelled her to make the call to provide some evidence that he had left knowing full well that no final call would provide compelling evidence that he was responsible for her death the defendant's significant experience of escort agencies of course had made him aware that procedures of this kind were frequently adopted in these circumstances he went on this was the last occasion anyone is known to have spoken with sarah crump save for the defendant smith using the false name duncan was the last person known to be inside miss crump's flat before she was discovered to be dead he went there as a paying visitor and it would follow that for such a visitor she would have taken off her clothes and laid on the bed where she was found naked. The court was then told of the discovery of Sarah's body, the ghastly wounds she had suffered, and how it had been argued at his previous trial that the incisions to Sarah's body were similar to the surgical scars of the woman, Janet, that Smith had become obsessed with, and who had rejected his attentions the jury was shown both a body map that detailed the location of injuries that sarah had received and photographs of the scar into janet's body and the similarities between both were striking unlike the 1993 trial the jury could also now hear due to the then codified double jeopardy laws of smith's previous crimes under bad character evidence. So Mr. Boyce continued. The killing of Sarah Crump was one element of a wider spectrum of evidence that reveals an escalating pattern of violent and sexual offending against women by the defendant, which stretched from his teenage years in the mid-1970s until his commission of the murder of another sex worker in 1999. That pattern includes the defendant's conviction in 1976 for the knife-point rape of a young mother in her own home, the attempted rape of an escort on the 18th of August 1991, just 10 days prior to the murder of Sarah Crump, and the murder and mutilation of a sex worker in 1999. The circumstances of that timeline of violent and sexual offending are such as to make it more likely that it was the defendant, and no one else, who was responsible for the death of Sarah Crump. That other murder of a woman called Amanda Walker bore a number of similarities with the murder of sarah crump not least the substantial mutilation to which the victim's body had been subjected after death the prosecution say that the evidence of that offending is highly probative of the prosecution's case that it was this defendant and no one else who was responsible for the murder of sarah crump Indeed several witnesses to smith's bad character gave evidence at the trial including the escort he had attempted to rape and murder as she feared just 10 days before the murder of sarah and who now presented as a credible witness to overcome smith's previous defense case the court was also told how police had tracked down the previous owner of the flat and had conclusively linked him to the fingerprints which had been unidentified at the first trial, proving that a second man whose fingerprint was in Miss Crump's flat could not have been the killer, as had been a key plank in Smith's previous trial. Prosecutors also relied on a prison confession made by Smith to a fellow inmate, Stephen Williams, which he'd made while on remand for the murder of Amanda Walker, at her majesty's prison high down in surrey and which had been heard at that 1999 trial but also in which which then legally couldn't have been heard in which he'd boasted about his acquittal in 1993 for the murder of sarah crump in the witness statement which now could be read more in full williams had wrote i would probably see smith twice a day during association period or at mealtimes. He would talk about S&M clubs in London, parties he used to go to, and things like that. He said he likes to see girls in a lot of pain, and to tie them up. He told me that he was responsible for another murder, in brackets, other than the murder of Amanda Walker, where he said he cut a woman's breasts off, or sliced her breasts. He kept saying about how the blood actually came out, and that it was really sexy and stuff. When he told me about this, he showed me how he would cut around the breasts. He didn't tell me much else about this incident, other than that it was about 7 years ago, that he was on remand for 18 months, that he went to the Old Bailey, and that he walked. He said they got no evidence on him, and that he got away with it. Boom! Smoking gun or what? Now, point of note referenced this second trial as well. Mohammed Yunus was also called as a witness here and gave evidence as he had 30 years previously concerning going around to the flat, describing what he'd found and reporting Sarah as missing first to the hospital and then in person at Southall Police Station. However, he was questioned before he gave evidence as it transpired that he had, during the lunch break of that day's court session, passed a handwritten note to a female court worker saying, You're beautiful and with his name and number on it, who had subsequently reported him to the trial judge. Defence Barrister Philippa McCatassane KC asked him During the lunch break you passed a note to a member of court staff that said You're beautiful which had your name on it. Now it should be noted this member of staff is not working in this courtroom. Why did you do that given that you're here for this trial as a witness? mr Eunice told the court that he had met the staff member before he entered the court building to give his evidence and replied i apologize i shouldn't have done that but being here and this situation you know it was just in case which i didn't understand the time and a place eh? i don't quite know what else to say to that really The court also heard a victim impact statement read by Joanne Platt, Sarah's older sister, on behalf of Sarah's relatives, including her parents, who had by then both since sadly died without seeing justice for their daughter, in which Sarah was described as a bubbly, popular and trusting person who believed in the good of people. Miss Platt added, I can't adequately express the pain of knowing what my sister endured my family will never come to terms with the brutal savagery of sarah's murder even after 32 years having to listen to the details of the attack against sarah was excruciating this was always so very important to pursue to finally see justice for sarah we would like to remember sarah for who she was to us the sister with the most amazing smile a funny thoughtful aunt and the daughter was one of the best three girls in the world at the end of the trial smith who didn't give evidence himself in this second trial was convicted by the jury of four women and eight men on wednesday the 24th of may 2023 unanimously after less than three hours deliberation and two days later on friday the 26th of may he appeared back at Inner London Crown Court before presiding Mr. Justice Bryan for sentencing. Sarah's family, including her two sisters, Joanne Platt and Suzanne Wright, together with Detective Inspector Jill McTeague, were each present in court for the hearing. Now, as much as I would love to, I won't bring the judge's full sentencing remarks here they are somewhat lengthy and largely regurgitate a lot of what i've brought here already but the link to read them in full for yourselves can be found in the references section of the episode show notes and i do recommend that you do well worthy of a read they are too somewhat largely condensed here then mr justice Bryan told smith who stood with his head bowed wearing dark glasses as he sentenced him I must sentence you for this abhorrent murder which was, I am sure, both sexual and sadistic in nature. Sarah Crump had the misfortune, whilst working as an escort, to meet a sadistic sexual killer in you when she invited you into her flat on the night of 28th of August 1991. There was no reason for the encounter to be anything other than consensual. You had, however, something very different in mind. I am in no doubt whatsoever that your premeditated and planned intention that night having first armed yourself with a knife that you took to the scene and having made sure that she was alone was to kill and sexually mutilate an escort to satisfy your perverted and sadistic sexual desires no one but you will ever know the precise sequence of events in her flat that night But what is clear is that a time came where you knifed Sarah repeatedly to the neck severing her carotid artery and jugular vein as well as knifing her through the heart her aorta and her left lung. Mercifully, death would have followed within seconds of you cutting her carotid artery. You then cut around and removed her breasts placing them elsewhere on the bed and cut her abdominal area removing a section of small bowel which you also placed elsewhere on the bed i am sure you gave a truthful account of what you did and why you did it to stephen williams your fellow prisoner in hmp highdown which was set out in his statement it perhaps goes without saying but conversely you are also a habitual and dishonest liar Not only do you have previous convictions for uttering a forged instrument and convictions for theft by an employee, and theft and obtaining property by deception, you lied and lied again throughout the trial of Amanda Walker, lied about events at the retreat hotel shortly before Sarah's murder, and repeatedly lied to the police in your interviews about the death of Sarah Crump. Initially, and repeatedly, that you had never been to Southall and had never met Sarah Crump. Before having to invent an incredible story in brackets when trapped by the cash point evidence, that you attended a flat but only to have a massage, again in brackets, despite the evidence being that you frequented massage parlours for which the fee was sixteen to twenty pounds, yet you paid Sarah Crump one hundred and fifty pounds alleging that you left her alive and well after which she was killed and mutilated by some random stranger despite it being 2 a.m and her being due at work at 6 a.m the jury were not deceived and neither am i mitigating factors for you are thin gruel indeed as you have shown no remorse whatsoever no sentence that i can pass can ever compensate the family of sarah crump for their loss it is clear that the loss of Sarah in such a way has had a profound effect on the family and that her mother never recovered from the shock as to the manner of Sarah's untimely death at your hands the family have been present throughout this trial through all the difficult and harrowing evidence rightly feeling that the case was so very important to pursue to finally see justice for Sarah And I would like to commend them for the dignified manner in which they've conducted themselves throughout the trial. I can only hope that your conviction and the sentence I pass will provide them with some closure, safe in the knowledge that you have been brought to justice and are likely to spend the rest of your life in prison, so that they can remember Sarah for who she was, the sister with the most amazing smile, the funny thoughtful aunt, and the daughter who was, in their words, one of the best three girls in the world which is the fitting epitaph on her gravestone there is only one sentence that the law allows to be passed for the offense of murder and that is a mandatory sentence of imprisonment for life accordingly the sentence i pass for your murder of sarah crump is life imprisonment with a minimum term of 27 years less 479 days That is life imprisonment with a minimum term of 25 years and 251 days. Take him down. Smith showed no emotion nor said anything before he was taken back to prison. Due to his age, and he is now approaching 67 years of age, he will more than likely die in prison. A day in which the air on this earth will become that slight bit cleaner now as i said i condensed the sentencing remarks here but do have a read of them from the link in the show notes they always make for fascinating reading i think after more than three decades the tragic wannabe mother had finally seen justice delivered following the verdict in a statement read outside the court sarah's sisters also said At long last, justice for our lovely Sarah, if only mum and dad were here with us today to share this momentous occasion. After the disheartening acquittal at the Old Bailey in 1993, our mum said that Smith would kill again. Eight years later, he was found guilty of an even more savage murder and mutilation of a young woman and mother, which he later admitted. 30 years may have passed, but we still miss Sarah. She was a shining light in a murky world who wished for the best but found the worst in humanity. Her older sister Joanne said the family had no idea Sarah had been working for an escort agency and believed she was merely because she wanted to fund fertility treatment because of her strong desire to become a mother, she added. It is hard for us to see her labelled in a way that didn't describe her. There was so much more to her than the headlines. She would have been a wonderful mum. She was a young woman with a bubbly personality who lived life to the full and was social and popular. She was a trusting and caring person who believed in the good of people and refused to listen to the criticism of others. We would now like to remember Sarah for who she was to us. The sister with the most amazing smile, a funny, thoughtful aunt and the daughter who was one of the three best girls in the world the phrase now tragically on her headstone detective superintendent rebecca reeves of the metropolitan police furthered david smith has finally been held to account for this horrific attack he committed over 30 years ago a crime he thought he had got away with he is a depraved man who will now more than likely spend the rest of his life behind bars after so many years it is hugely satisfying that smith has been brought to justice for sarah's murder my thoughts today are with sarah's family and also with the family of amanda walker both sarah and amanda's families have shown incredible strength dignity and courage i can only imagine how difficult it has been for them to have to hear again the details of Smith's offending against their loved ones. It was changes in the law that made it possible in this retrial to present evidence about the strikingly similar nature of the circumstances and injuries suffered by Sarah and Amanda. This, along with comments made by Smith while awaiting trial for Amanda's murder, and the evidence bravely provided by other women he had assaulted, left the jury in no doubt that he had attacked and killed Sarah. Smith is one of the most dangerous repeat offenders against women and girls I have ever encountered and this conviction means he faces many more years in prison. I hope Smith's conviction demonstrates our determination to pursue those who commit violent crimes no matter the length of time that has passed. You can only hope that if he has then before he dies david smith answers for the other crimes that he's committed the crimes of david smith the known ones anyway that we've heard of here are without question some of the most appalling and disturbing i've ever featured on the show and having known of this monster for some years the thought that is predominant with me is this guy has undoubtedly killed more than twice in his life i don't believe you have the psychopathy as far back as 1976 to rape a young mother at knife point wounding her in front of her young children to then 11 years later being convicted of unlawful imprisonment then having cases of rape dropped the following year and again just 11 days before committing such brutal cold-blooded murder the latter almost certainly which would have ended in murder i don't believe this is the extent of david smith's sexual offending look at the 1976 rape and the murder of amanda walker the beginning and end points of his known offending in both cases a large knife is present we heard how fascinated with knives he was from his ex-wife then you have the escort he more than likely would have killed in august 1991 then of course sarah knives and sex blur into one with smith at least the really satisfying fantasies for him involve one and if that's what floats your boat then it always will simple as it's likely that what he's done to sarah and amanda as sick as this sounds he feels is his greatest achievement at least those are the two that we know about for more disturbingly blood and mutilation is the cherry on the top of said fantasy for him i said earlier in the episode that smith has been looked at as a serious possible suspect in the murders of sex workers nationwide and i'd certainly agree there we've heard of his sex drive and his penchant for street sex workers and escorts he was known to travel extensively for sex to sex parties and to try and meet various escorts plus as a lorry driver And arguably a taxi driver too, Smith had ample opportunity to travel the country, getting to know red light areas in different cities he would visit. And for someone with such a sex drive, it's not a massive jump to think that he would each time take advantages of such services nationwide, each time he was on an overnight trip. Now, if extreme mutilation is his particular bent, and it is, for me, he's the prime suspect in the murders of linda donaldson and maria rakenna whose tragic tales i covered in the penultimate episode of this series the specter of the east lanks road now based upon smith's mo there are also several other cases of murdered sex workers dotted around the country from the mid-1980s onwards that i believe he is a serious suspect for and again allowing for a year or so of lying low following the closest of shaves with a life sentence in 1993, a couple of others in the years following this, leading up to the murder of Amanda Walker, predominantly in the London area. It makes for a sad list of reading the amount of people on the list of victims Smith could have assisted in compiling, but have strictly looked at those cases of these unsolved that involve knives or extreme mutilation. I think that's too important a part of his bloodlust, his signature, to be missed that. His DNA's not shown up at the scene of any unsolved crimes, though this shouldn't rule him out. After all, none of his fingerprints were found at a crime scene that he was undoubtedly responsible for. A full and detailed list of his movement over the years for work would be invaluable, although frustratingly, due to the passage of time we're talking here, quarter of a century, any fuel receipts, invoices or tachograph cards that could have helped pinpoint this will more than likely have been destroyed now or lost. And yet, I never just jump into this without arguing both sides of the thinking out loud bit. And as I say, I should stress as well, which you always do, I am not professing what I say to be right. It is is, thinking out loud, bit of an educated guess, really. But what I find as a stumbling block for his culpability in other crimes is his carelessness. In the murder of Sarah, he was traced by his telephone number to the escort agency. And in the case of Amanda, he discarded clothing covered in his own blood on a footpath near to his home. Where he would be looked at as a suspect during a sweep of the area because he was a convicted sex offender, instead of keeping the clothing in his car and then placing them into a refuse bag and discarding them with household rubbish, where they'd be taken to a landfill site and perhaps never to be found. And this ultimately put him away for a life sentence. Now, I wrestle with the fact that I'm almost certain that he's killed others. I just feel it undoubtedly, but if he has, then why these lapses in awareness that have ultimately netted him two life sentences? Because Smith spent the majority of his money on sex workers, chat lines, and escort girls for many years, yet he cannot have killed each time he did, or he would have long been detected beforehand. What triggered him the twice that we know he did? Was it just an impulse thing each time? i think he's an imposing enough figure that out of fear no one would try and rip him off so what peaked it on those times for him the only conclusion i can come to is that at particular moments in his life david smith's bloodlust is up to a certain point that the hulk himself could not stop him and so fixated is he upon mutilation seeing women cut and bleeding That he loses any rational thought of self preservation and all forensic awareness goes out of the window. And that cannot have happened just twice, surely. Not with such a monster as we've heard described. I can't say definitively if Smith's killed others. Of course I can't. But the spidey sense in me says to me, fucking right he has. He will never tell though, not even if he has found God as is claimed and will take any secret he has with him to his grave look how in the face of such overwhelming evidence against him he again still pleaded not guilty to sarah's murder a truly unfeeling monster this one is what do you think i ask you as always though to more so than any thoughts of smith who will rightfully end his days behind bars now? Let him rot there. Take thoughts of the women we've heard of here the young mother back in 1976, the escort in 1991, the young woman who managed to escape from his car back in 1987, and most importantly, Sarah and Amanda. Two tragic figures there one a mother, one who you would have hoped would have been, simply doing what at that point in their life they needed to do for whatever reason no judgment here and who had the misfortune to be chosen by a monster with the most horrific of murderous plans in his mind this episode is dedicated to sarah amanda and their families i would love as always hearing any thoughts and feedback you have on the terrible crimes of david smith which you can do so in the episode thread that's up in the show's facebook discussion group now or through any of the show's social media links i would love to hear what you think do you agree with me that smith could be the person responsible for several unsolved murders across the country or do you want to get in touch and say shut up murder she wrote you dickhead of course he hasn't i'd love to hear what you think because of course i could be way off Last time I checked, neither of my balls was crystal. As this episode became the Series 8 finale, then, I will end it as forever with a thanks that I bring. The traditional series review will be coming in a couple of days, and I do actually have some time to sit down and do it as well. But I want to take the time here and say, you folks, from the bottom of my heart, you each rule. Doing a show such as this to the bar that I set myself. Sometimes to get the content out can feel like it's a bit of a mountain. It feels like it would be easier to restore the trust in the bloody post office than do it. So I can't express enough how much kind words or shares and feedback do spur a person on. Any indie show creator listening will agree and tell you the same thing. And it means the world when each of you do. So thank you. The show still remains my absolute passion and privilege to do. If anything, it grows, that does. And I look forward to bringing you countless more tales over the years. Can't wait to. Time for a short break now, because I do know when I need to. Though me and the Mog will be back with you very soon for more of the same. It's not broke, so it doesn't need fixing at all. As ever, too, I dedicate this series to my dad, JD, and if Foster's is your choice of tipple, then, please, raise one for him if you're listening in with that it's time for me to finish up and shut up now then, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon, as it's the series finale as well as we do, and in spite of the content that you've have here, I'll end by saying, "Don't have nightmares, do sleep well." Goodbye for now.